0: Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you're gonna hear a conversation Peter Kadzis and I had with Dan Kennedy. He is, as many of you know, our former colleague at the late Boston Phoenix, a journalism professor at Northeastern University, and a media critic who writes regularly for WGBH News. But Dan is also the author of The New England Muzzles, an annual compendium of local threats to the First Amendment or the principle of freedom of expression. He used to write the muzzles for the Phoenix. Now he writes them for WGBH News. And the latest installment, the 2020 New England muzzles, just came out at WGBHnews.org. So Dan and Peter, for listeners who are not familiar with The New England Muzzles, Can you offer a brief synopsis of the history of this particular endeavor? Well, it's Dan's baby. So Dan, why don't you take it away? Well, this was originally
1: Harvey Silverglate's idea. And of course, he still participates doing the campus muzzles. But in 1998, when we were all at the Boston Phoenix and before you were at the Phoenix, Adam, uh, Harvey came to us with this idea of singling out uh, outrages against the First Amendment that had taken place in New England the previous year. And so we started doing it at the Phoenix around the 4th of July, in order to make it as patriotic as possible, in 1998. And uh, we have been doing it ever since. As we all know, the Phoenix shut down in the spring of 2013. And fortunately, we were able to move them over to WGBH News, where they have lived ever since.
0: Have they changed at all in terms of not the basic concept, but either the execution, the way you gather these, the way you write them up, or maybe, and I'm thinking out loud here, obviously, in terms of the types of outrages that you've ended up highlighting? It
1: varies from year to year. I can't say that there has been... um, a huge shift in tone. You still get high school students getting smacked down. You still have public records violations. Uh, You still have uh, local government officials trying to uh, tamp down on uh, raucous public debate. And in fact, we have one of those this year. In Exeter, Rhode Island, they've adopted an ordinance that says that people must act with decorum Uh, when they appear before a public board. The method is pretty much the same as it always was. Uh, There is not much original reporting that goes into this. Uh, Rather, it's also a chance to highlight some of the really good reporting going on uh, at the local level around New England. So uh, certainly the Boston Globe and WGBH News get multiple shout outs this year, uh, but so does the Portland Press Herald, the Providence Journal, some of the local TV stations, and. and news organizations like that.
2: One of the things, as is, is the person who's edited this for years, is um, there's often some really interesting stories in other parts of New England. Like Dan mentioned, uh, eggs of the Rhode Island, you know, with the call for decorum, which basically means if you're critical, be quiet. Um, th- there are efforts to do things like that almost every year somewhere in New England. Um, And I think Dan's right and very generous in crediting the primary sources for the the Muzzle Awards. And, And I think that underlines the importance of local news. If it weren't for strong local newspapers, like, say, the Portland Press Herald, um, or some small weeklies elsewhere. i I think Dan would have a really tough time doing these. Um, th- there's a direct line between recognizing what's not going right in public life in a vibrant local media.
0: Let me now ask each of you, and we can start with you, Dan, since you're the one who wrote these and then move on to the editor after you've offered a couple. but can you pick out? Let's say two of your favorite, by which I guess I mean least favorite, examples from the 2020 installment. And uh, talk through for listeners what the big contours of those storylines uh, were or are.
1: Well, I already know one of the ones that Peter's going to talk about, so I'm going to try to avoid that. Good man. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. But but one of my absolute favorites this year is the uh, US Customs and Border Protection Service. They have an outpost uh, in northern Maine, right on the Canadian border. And as it turns out, uh, there's a small island uh, in the Canadian province of New Brunswick, uh, Campobello Island, I believe it's called. Uh, where the only way they can get their mail for about eight months of the year is by a uh, a land bridge that goes from uh, uh, Maine into their island and so as a result you've got internal mail going from one Canadian address to another Canadian address passing briefly through Maine and as a result The feds have arrogated unto themselves the right to open their mail and inspect it. And uh, this became a huge story late last year. It was reported by the BBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Service, the Washington Post, uh, the Boston Globe. It's just an absolutely outrageous situation. And the only thing that local residents can figure out is that it has something to do with the demon weed, the marijuana trade. Um, Pot is legal in Canada, it's legal in Maine, but you can't send it through the mails, and apparently that's what the feds are doing. And if we can't have our mail be sacrosanct, uh, that is just really an absolutely outrageous situation.
2: You know, many, many, many years ago, I used to used to go camping every year up around there, and um, a deader place, a beautiful, a a deader place would be hard to imagine, and uh, boy, those. Local Canadians who live on those islands are uh, really a very sinister lot <laughs> you, <know? laughs> um, you You may be right about the the marijuana um it could also be that the 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 postal people up there or the border people up there need something to justify their existence um, but it it it's um it's pretty ridiculous.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Do we know if this is a new development or something that's been going on for years? I'm thinking before the Trump administration that only recently became news in terms of the wider world paying attention. You know, in terms of the local coverage, this became a big story
1: late last year. And it leads me to believe that it's a fairly new development. Um, no one had reported on this until last November, December, and so I do think that it's a fairly recent phenomenon.
0: Well, and if marijuana is involved, then it would make sense that uh, this might have been a, say a Jeff Sessions initiative back when he was in the president's good graces. But I'm just theorizing here.
2: It could very well be. A counter theory based on absolutely no reporting. <laughs> Uh, absolutely no facts. I wonder if it's a holdover from the war on terror, um, in that it first might have made sense to some people, uh, and that it, it fails to make sense now. But that's that's just a theory.
0: Oh, sorry. That's our one of our cats jumping on the piano. Hazard taping down here. <laughs> All right, so, Dan, there is one of your favorites. Can you uh, give us one more before we turn to, to Peter's faves?
1: Well, I think I will go with our lead muzzle this year, which is to the Milton Public Schools in Milton, Massachusetts. Uh, in early June, a sixth-grade poetry teacher named uh, Zakia Jarrett uh, was giving a lesson on uh, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, killing by police and in the course of giving that lesson and it was remote um, she said that uh, to the effect that some cops are racist, and apparently a parent or maybe even a student, we still don't know, uh, made a recording, sent a 13 second clip to a number of people, including the school department. And the school department, instead of reminding parents that it's completely against school policy uh, to record these remote lessons, uh, instead decided to put her on paid leave and investigate. And uh, it was an absolutely outrageous response to a very logical thing that uh, Zakia Jarrett said. Um, I should point out that even though the Milton Milton is a somewhat diverse community, uh, Zakia Jarrett is one of the few black teachers in the school system. Uh, The school department did come to their senses in a few hours and restored her. Uh, But really, a lot of damage has been done. Something like 400 people signed a petition uh, in support of her. Uh, The school system says that they apologized, although I should say that the uh, teachers union in Milton has said that it was an insufficient apology. And uh, the last I saw, Zakia Jarrett was telling the Boston Globe that she hasn't decided whether to go back to her job in Milton or not because uh, the whole situation was so
0: traumatizing to her. My recollection, tell me if I'm wrong here, is that she said that many police officers are racist as opposed to some. According to your write-up, she was leading a remote sixth-grade poetry session and said that Black people were, quote, being killed by racist white people, which many of the cops are as well. Does that make a difference as we try to think through the proportionality of the Milton Public Schools' response?
1: Yes, that's right. That is the... um most direct quote that we have from her. Would it have made a difference? Um, I'm going to answer that in kind of theoretical terms, and that is, I think that given the difficulty of teaching online, which is something that public school teachers across the country are struggling with, uh, and given the absolute breach of protocol by whatever parent uh, recorded that lesson and passed it on to school officials, uh, that what was really warranted here was for the school department to slap down whoever sent them the clip, if indeed they even know who sent it. And if she said something inappropriate, uh, that would seem to be Uh, something that you would deal with her privately on Uh, I'm not gonna sit here and say that what she said was inappropriate but if she did I think it should have been handled privately yeah what she said is clearly
2: a defensible proposition yes Um, I, I suspect Dan, that you may be tougher on the police than I am however it is been established factually over and over and over again that there is um, extreme amounts of um, violence perpetrated by police officers on black people and generally people of color. It might have been nicer if she had some more precise wording, but I don't think that really matters. It's a factually defensible position at a minimum, and it's a factually true position maximally. To me, the really bigger point isn't one of free speech, although that's indisputable. It's the degree to which we all live in a surveillance society now. Um, It may be de facto, I mean, for example, the three of us are all at home, we're talking on Zoom, we're doing backup recordings on our iPhones so that uh, Zoe, our Producer can fix any glitches that we may make we're having a constructive conversation, but um there are records of all this. this would even be subject to uh, a police warrant for example by the way I, I I'm not saying it would be granted i'm not saying we're saying anything that breaks the law, but we live in a in a surveillance society and um I don't think any of us have
0: really come to terms with that. That's a good point, and also makes me want to wrap up early, but I will not. I'll resist the urge to, to get out. <laughs> you told me I didn't have to wear pants, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's a couple highlights or lowlights from Dan Kennedy. Peter Kadzis, uh, do you have a couple? Well, we know because Dan, you know, uh, teased it early on in the conversation that there's at least one that you want to bring to the fore. What, what is your favorite or what are your favorites from this year's batch of muzzles?
2: Well, my total favorite from Dan's list is uh, Judge Richard Sinnott, the judge who I, I think could kindly be described as extremely anti-immigrant, who basically locked up a migrant worker lawyer, Susan Church, who's somewhat famous around here because a couple of years ago when President Trump issued his uh, Muslim ban, she immediately headed to Logan Airport um, to begin fighting it. Um, He picked on the wrong woman. (laughs) But, I, I, I mean, he threw her in jail and found her in contempt because she was reading the law to him. I I mean, um, I have no doubt that... Let me hop in. Sorry to interrupt.
0: I thought this was about, isn't this about something else? Isn't her inclusion in this, and forgive me, I thought it was about straight pride demonstrators?
1: Dan, am I going in the wrong direction with this? Well, there's several things wrapped up in this. Um, What what the uh, Susan Church... Uh, incident stemmed from was a bid by Suffolk District Attorney Rachel Rollins to drop charges against several of the counter protesters who had been picked up uh, on various types of nonviolent charges they the rawlins wanted to keep in place the charges against some of the violent protesters but she said let's not waste our time with people who were really just exercising their first amendment rights and judge Sinnott said no i'm not going to drop charges against anybody and uh, it ended up going before a single justice of the Supreme Judicial Court, and uh, Rollins fortunately was upheld, and Senate got smacked down um, But the reason that Susan Church got tied up in this was because she was speaking on behalf of Rachel Rollins' bid to drop charges and when Senate said no, Church started reading from case law to you know, to put him in his place, frankly. And Senate found that to be so outrageous that she was handcuffed and taken from the courtroom and locked up for a few hours. So this whole thing was just this incredible performance by by Judge Senate.
0: And Peter, Sinnott has a deep local political bloodline, right? Yes, I forget,
2: I'm not sure, relatives, I'm just gonna be safe here and say that um, the the corpor- longtime corporation counsel under Tom Menino was a Senate. Um, the city censor under Kevin White was a Senate. I think as city censor, he had something to do with um, initially trying to prevent the Rolling Stones. From coming to Boston.
1: That's right. That's right. And this was Judge Sinnott's father, who was also named Richard Sinnett.
2: He was the. Okay, I thought so. I, I, I just, I just wasn't sure. Um, it, it is to say, a uh, conservative family, although the Senate that was Corporation Counsel um, seemed to have uh, a much stronger sanity gene worked into his <laughs> DNA.
0: <laughs> Uh, okay, so there's one of your faves, Peter. Anything else uh, that you want to highlight as especially heinous? Well, there's one of the campus muzzles that Harvey
2: Silverglade did that really struck me. And that was, involves the campus newspapers at Harvard and Tufts. Some people may remember that the Harvard Crimson came under much criticism from fellow students because in the course of uh, reporting a story, they quoted ICE. And to make a long story short, the the critics of the Crimson claim that ICE is so far beyond the pale that they don't deserve to be quoted and that quoting them was tantamount to collaborating with them. The Crimson responded very professionally, with uh, a long and detailed account of why they did what they did, citing standard journalism practice, um, journalistic ethics about talking to all sides in a dispute. And then the Tufts newspaper was moved to show solidarity with um, their cohorts at Harvard. And at Tufts, all holy hell broke loose too. And the the students at Tufts, I, I I believe the paper really caved somewhat and you know, didn't hold as strong a line. The the, the reason this is important is that these so called student journalists, they're really young pre professionals, many of them are gonna go on to work in the business. And I think it just shows what a gulf there is between those people in the press, dare I say, like the three of us, who hold to the ideal of um, fairness and reporting the other side, even if you vigorously disagree with the other side, and an emerging popular culture that is um, not tolerant about hearing from the other side.
0: Before we go, I gotta ask the two of you about one of the New England muzzles that really jumped out to me, and that was Governor Charlie Baker deciding that he wants to end access, effectively, to vital records for people in Massachusetts, births, deaths. Uh, weddings, that sort of thing what what is the rationale here from the Baker administration? It seems like such a strange move. You know, Massachusetts has a terrible record when it comes to
1: public records. We are uh, uh, definitely in the bottom half of the country uh, in terms of access, but we 've always been quite good in terms of access to the vital records that we're talking about here. And that's a tradition that goes back 380 years. Uh, Governor Baker has not spoken to this publicly, uh, but my understanding is that uh, he thinks there's a privacy concern here and he's also trying to bring Massachusetts more in alignment with what some other states are doing. Uh, But this is really important information for the public and for journalists. Uh, Jennifer McKim of WGBH News Tweeted in response to this proposal uh, that she has relied on these records uh, in reporting on suicides among college students, for instance. uh, A a really important issue that would be much more difficult to report on if this were to become law. This um,
2: Governor Baker's insane idea is a rejection of uh, community mores that go back to the Puritans. You know, it, it's the essential, essential bit of um, how our communities work to have these vi- this vital information public,
0: period. All right. So for readers who want to read in greater detail about the cases that we've just discussed and for people who want to learn about the other examples highlighted by Dan this year, Peter, where do they go? WGBHnews.org. And, you know, you could do
2: slash muzzle awards, but just go to WGBHnews.org, scroll down, they'll be in the opinion section.
0: And that is going to do it for another installment of the Scrum. Thanks to Dan Kennedy for joining me and Peter Kadzis. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us if you have a minute. And talk back to us. You can reach us by email at scrum at wgbh.org. Or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. Happy July 4th, everyone. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.